Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Benjamin Bolin, founder and previous CEO of Everyday Health. Everyday Health is a healthcare communication platform and publisher of health and wellness content that strives to bridge the gap between lifestyle and medical sites. Ben's journey with Everyday Health is a very interesting one, and not one that many entrepreneurs have paralleled, so I'm particularly excited to learn more. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, why don't we get started with a little bit more on your background and your career prior to Everyday Health? So my career prior to Everyday Health wasn't very long. Um, I founded or co-founded the company with uh, two other guys in 2002. I was 26 at the time. Um, uh, so I'd been out in the workforce for all of uh, three years or so, working at a bunch of different startups in the digital space, not so much in the healthcare space. And uh, Mark, Mike, and myself, the three founders, got together, um, pooled our credit cards, $100,000 from friends and family, um, set up shop in a kitchen in Brooklyn, uh, and started to uh, build a business, which after uh, you know, 15 years or so, would uh, go on to generate you know 250 million dollars of revenue a year, 70 million of EBITDA, uh, go public, and eventually get sold. So uh, a lot of ups and downs on that journey, um, um, which I'm excited to talk about. Yeah. So I mean, as far as getting into healthcare, is that something from an academic perspective that you were maybe interested in, or did it just end up uh, kind of happening when you founded the company? Yeah, so it's a good question. So n none of the founders really had deep background in healthcare. We all had interactive, direct-to-consumer advertising experience. Um, you know, what drew us to health was, you know, the emergence of consumers and physicians looking for information online. At that time, 2002, you already had substantial financial information websites, sports websites, auto, retail, et cetera. Health was still emerging as a category, and we were excited about it. We were also excited about the you know, core mission of helping people you know, get access to information so they could make better you know, healthcare decisions for themselves or, or for their patients. Um, so it was nice. It was, a, it was a great business opportunity, but also a good thing to do for, for society. When you started the company back in 2002, what was your long-term vision for the company? Where did you see this going at day one? On day one, it was really about getting to day two, okay. um, <laughs> and then maybe getting to through week one. So, you know, I, I think on, on some levels, we always thought we could build a big company. Okay, uh, What that looked like and what form it would take, it, it was hazy at best. And, you know, we actually started our company by charging consumers access to healthcare information. That was the first model, subscription business. You know, what it turned into 15 years later, what we sold it for, completely different. Uh, the subscription business still existed in some form. So the business took a lot of twists and turns. And I think maybe the the, the core principle was that consumers would come online for healthcare information. How we took advantage of that, what we gave them, how we generated revenue, all of that changed. And and to say that we knew exactly where we were going would, would just not be accurate. I mean, we we had ideas, but they were ideas. And and maybe the key to our success was being willing to evolve those ideas and change over time. So when a lot of entrepreneurs are starting companies today and they decide to go get venture backed, one of the main criteria that you'll hear VCs hone over is the fact that is the actual founding team strong enough? Do they have the relevant experience? So how did you decide to start the company with the people that you did? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, 
now having worked with a lot of VCs and sitting on boards of companies, I think, especially in the early stage, you know, let's call it Series A or seed uh, investing, so much what of what the investor is looking for really is, like you said, a team that can evolve. I think everyone goes in knowing that the business world's going to change, the compet- competitive set's going to change, their model is probably not going to be right out of the gate. Hopefully, they've picked a big enough category that they can make some success, but it's going to change over time, uh, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. So can the team adapt? Um, can they evolve? And you know, what would you look for? You look for people who are you know, a certain level of intelligence, creativity. Uh, certainly, they have the wherewithal to you know, uh, be told no a lot um, uh, and rebound. And so for me and my original partners, and, and I would say for all of the first, like, 20 to 30 employees that that we had, what everyone shared in common was an excitement to try something different, a willingness um, to take a risk, uh, a willingness to look at data and evolve your position based on what the market was telling you. Hey, we thought we could charge, you know, I remember we started a pregnancy website and we charged for that for the longest time. It, it never was more than like a million dollars of revenue. Uh, we had a lot of consumer interest, a lot of brand. We could never convert consumers from free to paid. And eventually we just said, this isn't working. Let's like rip out the paywall and let advertisers have access to it. And then all of a sudden the business blossomed. It turned into a $30 million business. Highly profitable, great opportunity. And I think it was that kind of uh, willingness to to change, to evolve, to look at information that certainly in the beginning, those those first couple of employees, the founders, all of us shared, and and that's who we you know look look to surround ourselves with. So I want to get to the ad driven model in a bit, but I guess in terms of evolving and adapting, what did the competitive landscape look like when you started the business, and what were some of the main challenges that you faced when you were trying to scale the business initially in the early two thousands? So in the early two thousands, I mean, it was like I- I- internet Armageddon. Yeah. Um. You know. So. You know, the largest advertisers online were 100% performance-driven. Columbia House, you know, Weight Watchers Online, Lower My Bills, those type of companies that, you know, paid everything was on a CPC basis. Uh, There was no brand advertising. It was a much smaller market. Um, And so it's one of the actually reasons we started in a subscription model because we're like, hey, it's a lot better to be a buyer of media than a seller of media at the time. And uh, over time, the the marketplace evolved. More consumers came online to get information. More marketers felt comfortable marketing. But really, we didn't. Even though, again, when you know, in 2016, when we sold the company, 225 million plus of advertising revenue at the time. It wasn't until 2000 and let's see, we started in 02, 2006 or so. We had our first advertising dollar, and so in that beginning, it was all subscription. And I would say it was almost the environment was almost like hostile towards advertising, you know, oriented businesses at the time. So a lot changed in those first couple of years, and then the the world continued to evolve. I mean, certainly the iPhone and Facebook uh, didn't exist when we started the company, uh, and those, you know, Google was not even the dominant search provider at the time. You had Yahoo and Bing, et cetera. So um, uh, the landscape changed. What didn't change was that consumers wanted health information and that if you aggregated enough of them, they would be worth something to somebody. 28 million unique views per month by 2011. And the last numbers that I checked, 44 million monthly unique users. 
What would you say would be one or two key pieces of advice employed to scale the business that quickly? It's a good question. You know, I, I would say when I when I look back at, you know, what allowed us to succeed and, and maybe more important, why were we not succeeding at certain times? So much of it came down to the people, you know, that were employed at the company. When, when we had the right person doing the right job, things scaled. Uh, when they were willing to look at the data, like that pregnancy example, things scaled. When we didn't, it was like pushing a you know boulder up a mountain. And I look at big pivot points and accelerating points. A lot of it came around a willingness to stop doing something that wasn't working and go to where that puck was going, so to speak, and and then put the right person on the right opportunity. So that being said, you know, even with the VCs that you work with now until this day, how important is building culture at the early stage? I mean, critical. When you get it right, it, it's that environment that allows you to to scale. I, I think, you know, a, along with that willingness to evolve also needs to be a willingness to embrace a culture of change, not just that the, hey, the business model or the approach might change, but like my job might change, my title might change, yeah. my responsibilities might change. And I, I think especially in that, you know, call it zero to 100 employees phase, you know, the people who succeeded were the people who came in and really said, I, I, I'm just excited to be a part of this. And yeah, I might be a software engineer, but I also want to, you know, be exposed to the marketing side. The, the people who were more rigid, hey, this is the job that I do, you know, I only want to do this, and any deviation from that struggled. And, and it's interesting because almost the inverse happened when we got bigger. 500 plus employees, the people who wanted to do everything were less focused, excited by every opportunity. They struggled. The people, the people and processes that we put in place where we got really good subject matter experts, this is what they did. They did it over and over again. Um, the more streamlined we were around that, the better we were. So it's interesting. Different phases of the business definitely require different cultures and attitudes. So coming back to the point that you mentioned earlier of the ad-driven model, so Google and Facebook essentially command north of 60% of the global ad spending market at this point. Um, and a lot of businesses have come to rely predominantly on the ad-driven model, and they're having a very hard time significantly growing their business at this point. What is your take on the greatest challenges that digital publishers face today, and what opportunities do you see for them to accelerate growth in this environment? I, I mean, I, I think it, you you said it. It's dominated by... A couple of players. I mean, between Google, Facebook, you know, throw in one or two uh, other players, you know, you've got 80% of the market spoken for. And that's very hard. So you're you're fighting, even though everyone says, oh, online advertising, it's huge. It, in reality, the market that you're fighting for is much smaller. You're not going to steal money from, um, you know, Google, from search um, or, or, or Facebook. So, I think that you know those companies really have to fight a different fight, and and the companies that I see that are succeeding that are ad driven. Let's let's put aside the commerce companies or utilities, but the companies that are ad driven that are succeeding are generally seem to have two things in common. One is they focus on a very niche audience, um, hard to reach, hard to find. You know, maybe it's a professional audience. We serve accountants and we're the leading provider of information for accountants and that's a harder group to identify on Google or on Facebook they probably can but maybe they're not the home and destinations for them 
consumer enthusiasts about a, a very niche topic. They like motorcycle racing or something like that. The other, you know, characteristic of the companies that I see succeeding in the ad-driven model are they're generally multi-platform. They're not just online. They've got maybe even a print component. They've got an offline component. They can connect with their audience in a unique way that is different than what Google or Facebook um, tends to be. But it's, you know, no bones about it. There's, it's tough out there right now. And I, I would say, you know, we were very lucky to start our business when we did I said it was Internet Armageddon from an advertising standpoint, and that's the case. But it allowed us to enter, build an audience, and then as the market came back, we were there to accelerate it. I don't honestly know if we could start our company today. I'm not sure we could. So in 2010, the company uh, attempted to be publicly listed, and the capital markets in 2010 obviously weren't too hot. CNN dubbed the year as the year of uncertainty and volatility. European debt was a concern. There was an unfavorable jobs report, which equities uh, took a hit from. Then you had the flash crash as well, which impacted the Dow. So I wanted to understand how was the consensus reached internally at that time that we should proceed to be publicly listed? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, When when you say it like that, it doesn't sound like the smartest decision. (laughs) I I think, you know, we had uh, started that process much earlier, probably 08, 09. And so this was two, three years in the making. Yeah, okay. definitely. We didn't just wake up 2010 and said, let's do it. So it was in the making. And, you know, thankfully, we pulled back. It was it, The market wasn't receptive. Uh, we weren't ready as a company also. Uh, in retrospect, should we f- have filed at all? Probably not. But, you know, we listened to what the market was telling us, and, 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 we, pulled, and we pulled back. We certainly wasted some capital, some focus, but, you know, we did the right thing and kept building the business. During the entire process, how was the relationship with the bankers on the coverage and the equity capital market side? So they naturally have the incentive fees to push the deal through. Was there significant negotiation around the pricing to manage the expectations of the institutional clients, or was it something else entirely? I think we never got that far. Okay. I, I think when you go public, you know, there's a, a large, you know, legal bureaucratic process to to get ready, file the S one, you know, um, get SOX compliant, et cetera. We did that. We got our S one ready. We talked to the banks. We never priced. We never even got got far enough. I, th- I think we started. You know, we started to read the tea leaves prior to that. The benefit was we built a lot of relationships with institutional investors, with banks, who met us, and you know they weren't disappointed when we said no. They just said, "Great, go continue to build your business, and we'll see you in a couple years." And that's what happened. When it didn't end up becoming publicly listed, what was the impact on the team internally? I think everyone was relieved, to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe there was some excitement about it, but it, it was so clear that the, it was going to be a challenge for the company. Okay. Um, and we were admittedly pushing the envelope. And, you know, if you just compare today, you know, companies going public, 70 million of revenue. Now you've got companies going public like Zoom and Uber, Lyft, billions of revenue. You know, it's a, it's a totally different environment now than it was then. But even then, it felt a little bit early. I, I don't think anyone around the table. Maybe some of our inside investors were disappointed, but I think everybody was um, said, okay, you know, uh, window closed. Let's keep building the business. Now, everyone was still confident in our business, which was the most important point. And I don't think that the the IPO was just a fundraising event, not, a, not an end for everybody. So I'm sure there was a little bit of a letdown, uh, but it certainly wasn't, you know, a cataclysmic affair for the company. 
But in 2014, the company did come back, got publicly listed, a $100 yeah. million dollar raise at $14 a share. Yeah. So first, congratulations. Not many entrepreneurs can claim to have yeah. uh, passed that milestone. So in terms of the 2014 listing, was that for just raising capital? Was there pressure for liquidity from existing investors? Yeah, it was a couple of things. I mean, one was certainly the capital. We used to say we're fighting a, a war with a plastics you know, knife and fork. Um, we were definitely at a scale there, much bigger. And, and needed the cash. We wanted to do acquisitions. Um, the market was open, um, so you wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, uh, we also had investors that needed to get out by that time. Some of them had been in since 2003, and we wanted to provide liquidity to them. Um, so it served a, a couple of purposes. And when you look back upon the experience in retrospect, what best practices have you learned on terms of managing the actual relationships and expectations of investors? You know, I'd say private investors and public investors are are different. The common theme is, you know, doing what you said you're going to do, whether I'm going to grow 100% or 5% or I'm going to be profitable or not. It's, you know, delivering upon your forecast is, you know, first and foremost. The biggest lesson that, you know, we learned as a public company that was challenging for us in an ad-driven model was just the lack of predictability and insight into the business. I mean, you know, in some of these software-related businesses or much bigger businesses that have more operating history, they have a much greater idea of what's going to happen uh, this coming year, let alone this coming week. And, and I think uh, it was the biggest weakness for us as a public company was just the lack of predictability in our, in our business. So we could tell you what's going to happen this quarter. Could we tell you what's going to happen this year or even next year? No. Uh, or not very well. And, and that led to just a lot of challenges. Um, and, you know, as the, you know, when you look at the stock history, 14 going up, going down, coming back up, all of that was, a, a lot of that was around the lack of predictability. And, you know, I'll never forget when the stock went in half, um, it, you know, we missed the number by like $250,000 on a multi-hundred million dollar business. It seemed crazy. But I think what the market was telling us was, you know, your lack of precision and 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 predictability around the business just gives us fear, um, and that fear resulted in you know a massive stock drop. Um, it eventually came back, which is nice, but uh, it's hard. You know, I would say for those invest those companies that want to run public companies, you know, unless you can predict your business really well, it's a challenge. If you went back and did it all again, would you have kept the company private? You know, I've asked myself that a lot. I think on some, you know, y yes and no. Could we have built a bigger, more predictable business um, and had a different outcome as a private company? Yeah, you could, you might be able to argue that. On another hand, like, we definitely were living in an environment like where we said, why did we go public? We needed the capital. We needed to get liquidity for our investors. It wasn't going to happen by itself. So, I, I think uh, ultimately we made the right decision, I think, uh, to go public. It, it didn't it wasn't without its heartache. Uh, you know, if I had to go if I was put back in exactly in the same mode, you know, f whatever that was now, five years ago, would I have made the same decision? Pro probably. Uh, maybe I would have operated differently, set expectations differently, but I think I would have made the same decision. So two years later, in 2016, the business was eventually sold to Ziff Davis. Yeah. Curious to understand what the rationale was for that sale and why you decided to step down from operations. So, you know, in terms of at that point, you know, when you, once you're a public company, you know, you're kind of always for sale. 
you know, Ziff Davis and, and a bunch of other parties came in and made an offer for the company when we looked where we basically said the likelihood of us getting to that stock price on our own in the next, call it 18 months, is not high enough, you know, that outweighs the, the guarantee of, of doing the deal. So at that point, you're working for all your investors, you know, and for many of our investors at that point, it was a great return. You know, it was the right thing to do to to sell and and find a good home for the company and for its employees and it, and its partners. I guess advice for other entrepreneurs that are in the same situation that may be approached by multiple parties. What was the selection process for you to say it is company X or Y that you know I feel comfortable handing off the reins to? I mean, when you're a public company, it's a pretty simple uh, selection process. It's who pays the highest price. Okay. Uh, um, you know, that's your duty to your shareholders. If somebody is willing to pay, you know, ten dollars and fifty-one cents, you sell it to them. Um, if someone's willing to pay ten fifty-two, you're going to sell it to them. Um, so. Uh, I think as a private company, it's a very different calculus. Um, but as a public company, it's about maximizing the the return for the shareholders. And just a final question, Ben, in terms of the entrepreneurs that you may work with today, what is your advice for them when starting a business? My advice is, you know, uh, threefold. One, it's surround yourself with great people. It's, you know, your idea is likely not unique. Uh, but the people you find can be, and that can be the difference between success and failure. Second, when you start a company, you have to be irrationally exuberant. You know, like you're going to get told no uh, 99 times. You got to believe that the hundredth time is the one, um, and you got to kind of put your head in the sand, so to speak, when you're starting. Uh, but at the same time, and kind of advice number three is you've got to be ruthlessly pragmatic. Like, look at the data. Evolve your business if you need to. Don't think that your idea is the only way to solve the problem. And if you can do those three things, and some of them are, you know, um, uh, juxtaposed each, against each other, being irrationally exuberant and ruthlessly pragmatic at the same time are at odds. But you have to be a, you have to be both. Um, and if you can do that, you can probably build a great company. And in terms of looking at data and involving a business, what sectors are you particularly excited about moving forward? Is AI something that uh, piques your interest? I mean, I don't think AI is so much of a business as much as a solution to different categories. So I, I'm still very interested in healthcare and technology and solving problems there. Uh, I'm interested in some other categories. I don't think I'll sell a banner ad again. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, there's just so much opportunity, interesting uh, you know, things going on in, in the marketplace and you know, technology-oriented businesses. AI, you know, is an example of something that's disrupting lots of different categories, whether it be commerce or healthcare, et cetera. Um, so it, it's an exciting time to be an entrepreneur, an investor, um, as long as you're curious about, you know, how things work and how things can be better. And that concludes another episode of the Founder Fundamentals podcast. Benjamin Wallen, founder of Everyday Health. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, Ben, in the candid conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. 